It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Just sick of your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs> Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> G'day there, Mark Kenny, with another democracy sausage uh, for this week, which comes to you every week uh, from the Australian National University. I'm, of course, from the Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations, and we make this podcast each week with the uh, enthusiastic support of the Crawford School of Public Policy Policy Forum uh, and uh, and the School of Politics and International Relations and the College of Arts and Social Sciences and a, a range of others. Uh, and uh, it's it's always a pleasure to bring it to you. There's so much happening, of course, in the world and in politics, and uh, we always like to talk to interesting people. And that's what we're doing today, talking again with Alan Beam, who's been on the program a few times. He's, of course, the Director of International and Security Affairs Program at the Australia Institute, not to be confused with the Australian Studies Institute, although, let's face it, it could easily be done. Um there are two separate organisations. Alan, welcome back to Democracy Sausage. Mark, thank you very much. There's a lot to talk about, and I thought we'd just have a pretty sort of unstructured uh, conversation, if you like, because there, there are a number of different realms in which I, I am I'm really interested to hear your input on. Um, you know, both things that are happening internationally, which is uh, very much in your in your field of expertise, and and things happening domestically as well in in our own politics and. Uh, I should say for full declaration that you uh, did work for the previous iteration of a Labor government um, and that you worked with Penny Wong as well and she will come up in, in our discussion because foreign affairs and the way this government's positioning itself foreign affairs-wise is quite fascinating, but I th- think it's important just to declare that uh, you have uh, been in her employ in the past. Uh, that's correct. But unfortunately, it's rather long time ago since we had a Labor government. <laughs> well, it is, it is, but uh, it did rather emphatically change in May of this year. Sure um, and perhaps we can start there, actually, because it changed in May of this year federally. It had just changed only sort of six or eight weeks before that in South Australia, where a one-term Liberal government was tipped out. 
Uh, and we, of course, now as we sit here, uh, have just seen the Victorian election where Labor went in, I guess, in front, well, went clearly in front in, in terms of its position and was expected to win. But there was a lot of commentary and it sort of seemed to ramp up almost like a peanut gallery, uh, getting more and more enthusiastic about the possibility of a hung parliament or some sort of upset. And there was even reports at one stage of the Premier being... In, in trouble in his own seat and all this sort of stuff, and it all turned out to be a load of old bollocks. Mm. Yes, I think that many of the pollsters are pols- you know, taking polls from their barrackers. Yeah. And what they're not doing is connecting with that broad community, which actually does choose the government of the day. And um, I think we've seen this as a continuing feature of polling in Australia now, uh, for certainly for the last um, seven or eight years. And um, I think the pollsters have got to think very carefully about how they access the the voting community. And I think particularly the millennials. Mm. Uh, the millennials, I don't think their voices are heard in polling. And maybe that's because of polling techniques. Maybe they're using landlines rather than mobiles or other mechanisms for getting at the millennials. But in any case, they're very far from accurate. Well, they are. But the, the, the other problem, of course, and, 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 and I think that's a really important point to make because um, I think we're in a degree of, of sort of post-2019 poll shock still. Mm-hmm. We might have thought we'd got past it, but I think what we saw in the Victorian election and probably in some others perhaps in the federal election to a degree as well, is a level of sort of trauma, ongoing trauma from all of the people whose job it was to interpret these things, not just the pollsters, but then the political correspondence, of course, of which I was one in in uh, leading up to that election and, and in many before that. Um, the sort of trauma of having got it so wrong in 2019 when Scott Morrison had that so-called miracle win has had this ramification rolling forward that uh, that that people are disinclined sometimes to read the evidence right in front of them. And so even when you've got good polling, like methodologically sound polling, which turns out to be quite representative of what eventually happens, you've had this kind of mealy-mouthedness, this kind of each-way bet interpretation. And we saw that almost happening at an institutional level um, in the 20, uh, in the, in this election we just had in Victoria, where it was all the poll, all the good polling, the sort of reputable polling was showing Labor holding on to its majority. Um, and, and even in a worst case scenario, perhaps only dipping fractionally under a majority in its own right. And yet, the tenor of a lot of the reporting was as if this election was on a knife edge. Mm. So I think there's this sort of combination of, of, um, of you know, not wanting to be on the wrong side of it, not wanting to, to, to sort of miss something that's happening in the electorate, and at the same time just being essentially uh, caught up in the in in the um, in the moment and and the momentum of a lot of skewed coverage. And let's face it, there was a hell of a lot of bias in the last uh, in that in the in that election well particularly in the melbourne media mm. i mean the print media in particular yeah um i mean this is a case where faith and hope are not evidence based mm-hmm. and um uh, what we've seen in the 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 two the tabloids uh, and of course uh, in the the broadsheet uh, is the same phenomenon where commissioned polling is delivering on editorial policy rather than delivering on the views of the electorate. And then, of course, we all read that stuff and we think, oh, hell, well, it doesn't feel right, but, you know, I'm sure that it's much more 
uh, evidence-based than anything that I can do because I'm only sort of licking my finger and putting it up in the breeze. Yeah. And it feels a bit different, but gosh, I better pay attention to this. I thought also the, the nature of the pylon, um, the anti-Andrews pylon in Victoria, probably was counterproductive. Mm. Um, I mean, it's not that everybody loves Dan. Um, I think at best- Everybody tolerates Dan, but I don't think the electorate really liked the pylon because most people have got a sneaking regard for him. Well, it got shrill. It got shrill and ridiculous. Uh, And and the other thing to say about it is that, um, you know, that if you look at the Liberal Party's uh, tactic here of really going sort of hard against Dan Andrews and, um, you know, that, that slogan, I think Sean Kelly wrote about this, don't let him get away with it which yeah. was not really specified what the it was. Yeah. And Kelly makes the point that would have been genius if it had worked, but for the same reason it wasn't because it, it didn't because no one knew what it was exactly. Um, and if, as we all suspect, the it, that, that don't let him get away with it, uh, if the it was uh, in relation to the pandemic and the, you know, the extensive um, lockdown and, and, and uh, restrictions that, you know, we're, we're, we're very punishing in, in Victoria. There's no denying that. But if that's what it was about, then yes, okay, there were a number of people who are particularly vocal and particularly angry about the way Victoria managed that, the, the, the strong approach that the government took, the overly strong approach that the government took in some instances, thinking about, say, night curfews yeah. and the like. But nonetheless, that is a minority. And yet the Liberal Party, you think about the tactics of this, the Liberal Party seeks to farm that resentment and and speaks directly to it with that slogan and with a number of other ways in which it um, ran a narrative about uh, about Andrews and it was aided and abetted by the Herald Sun in particular. Um, you know, the, the Murdoch press was very strong on this. Um, and they're starting with the minority. They're starting mm. with the minority position in the electorate and making them angrier. That mm. doesn't give you more votes. No. It gives you more angry it gives you the, you know some some votes that you already had that are perhaps a bit angrier than they were before. Look, I think the the Liberal Party holds up John Howard, and I think quite rightly, as a person who really did understand how to play politics in Australia. And the one thing that Howard, I think, taught the Liberal Party, and f- for so long as he was Prime Minister, he certainly practised it, was to play to the centre, not to play to the margin. And I think what we've seen the Liberal Party doing is two things – playing to the margin, in other words, playing to their supporters, whoever they might be. And I get the impression that their most vocal supporters are well to the right Mm. and don't represent the kind of conservative voter uh, which live in the blue seats of Melbourne and who spoke so differently uh, during the May election, for example. Well, it's a really good point, isn't it? Because they've just had this signature lesson in in sort of where their voters are by virtue of mm. what happened in the federal election in that state. You know, in seats like mm. Kuyong and Goldstein, they saw what happened. Habitual, lifelong liberal voters walking away from the Liberal Party on the basis of a number of important values, you know, yep. integrity in politics, the treatment of women, representation of women, and climate change, you know, yep. the three big ones. Um it's such a big thing for people who've always been voters for one party to walk away from that. It's such a big fracture. And yet they ignored that effectively, it yeah. seems to me. They, they, they didn't say, right, what we need to do here is, is actually recognize that our base, the mainstream, the, the, the motherload of votes in this, in this community holds these values 
clearly and we need to be representative of those. We need to adjust to that. They didn't say that at all. No. They that what they did is they listened to Sky After Dark. Mm. They 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 seemed to campaign for applause rather than campaigning for votes. Well, they listened to themselves. I mean, I think that's an always a dangerous thing, whether you're in politics or public policy. Uh, if all you do is sit inside the echo chamber and listen to yourself, mm. you're not going to be connected to the outside world. We come on to that in a moment with respect to foreign policy. Mm. I expect, but uh, coming back to the to the Victoria election and also the 2019 and the 2021 federal elections, uh, the Liberal Party didn't play to the centre. And I think that, that that really was a fundamental error and their strategists must have known that because it's such an obvious thing to do. If they've followed Howard, as I mentioned earlier at all, they would have seen that. The second thing is the it. Mm. Um, the it is a highly confected it and a very undifferentiated it that <laughs> Andrews was not allowed to get away with. I mean, was the it the COVID lockdowns? Uh, was the it his falling down the stairs in whatever the circumstances that the Hun, the Herald Sun, uh, was was hinting at? Um, was the it uh, a motor car accident 13, 15 years ago that Dan Andrews wasn't actually in? Um, <laughs> what kind of an it was this? And th- the voters know that those things are not connected but what the Liberals were actually doing in their undifferentiated, confected it was playing the anti-Shorten game from 2019. And the, you know, if you elect him, that's the bill you'll get, mm. actually did work. Mm. Um, and a lot of a lot of voters thought, oh, well, do we really want Bill or would we be better going with the one we've got? Mm. Um, I think there was a bit of buyer's remorse in 2021. I and uh, so. particularly yeah. in Victoria. And uh, the the um, the victory of the Teals and, and I mean such such a massive event in Australian political history yeah. was explained, I think. By the three elements that you touched upon, but also by buyer's remorse, we got Morrison and we don't want him anymore. And I think that that choice by the the voters nationally has been well and truly vindicated by Virginia Bell's report. Yeah, it has, hasn't it? it I mean, ha- oh, we've, we've made has. this point on the podcast before that um, the voters got rid of the Morrison government on the strength of uh, those things we talked about, those three things, um, but- they learned afterwards that their decision was, in, you know, absolutely vindicated. You know that that uh, the situation was even worse than it looked. Yeah. You know, this was not just a government addicted to secrecy and it, it, overreach of executive power and the like, but uh, it was all it, it was much worse than that. He, he was keeping secrets even from his own his own cabinet, yeah. uh, and it was all to do what to do nothing largely. I mean, and the, the government- look, Mark. I think the look. I mean, if we cast our minds back to Shorten's performance at the Tasmanian mine disaster, for example, mm-hmm. and then think forward. This is to, like Beaconsfield, to, you mean? Way Beaconsfield, back, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, think forward to Morrison's inability to hold a hose. You've got two quite different approaches there, yeah. And I do think that the the voters thought, "Oh, what have we got here?" And I don't think Morrison ever recovered from that, to yeah. be frank. And I think Sean Kelly makes that that point more or less in his book, amongst the other yeah. many excellent points that he makes. Yeah, and that not, not you know, um, that I don't hold a hose mate moment. You know, really was a disaster for him, as as indeed was the the the, the gesture that 
the, the action that led up to it, which was him going to Hawaii in the middle of a of yes. a bushfire crisis and then refusing to accept that he had any personal responsibility for it. Yeah. It was funny, actually, because a previous Liberal leader not so long before that literally did hold a hose in Tony Abbott. I mean, yeah. he was out there literally fighting fires. That's right, um, and swimming in the surf and saving lives. I mean, <laughs> you know, quite a different way of, of doing theatrical political performance. Yeah, and I noticed, I mean, we'll, we'll get off the Victorian election now, but just one final point. I noticed that uh, in the last week or so, in the last 10 days, you know, the uh, the extreme views of some of the Liberal candidates started to come out. Turns out they were connected to sort of ultra-conservative, Pentecostal uh, sort of international church groups and had some incredibly backward views on on uh, on issues like transgender and so forth, which really, I think, reminded a lot of voters of, um, you know, Morrison's Catherine Deves captain's yeah. pick in Warringah, which was also a disaster yeah. uh, and which which sent a message more broadly around the nation about who Morrison was and what really was important to him, which was so far out of sync. And, of course, when these views came out, Matthew Guy, the this is the, in the recent election when these views came out, uh, the Liberal leader started saying, well, I don't select the candidates. It's a matter for the organisational wing. And, uh, you know, he was pressed on it and he said, well, it's not my job. And that led to, a ju- you know, the, the juxtaposition of Morrison saying it's not my job and, and, and Matthew Guy saying it's not my job. And, you know, that's what Labor put out an ad straight yeah. away. Uh, it, you could just see it all playing there. This is a party. This is a, the Liberal Party is now a party in deep trouble. I think you know, yes, really trying is. to work out what it stands for, and mm. uh, it's being urged by a number of people on the in in, in the kind of um, uh, you know extreme media, I suppose you might call it. You know, the kind of right wing media uh, urging the Liberal Party to learn the lesson and shift further rightward. Well, no. I suspect a lot no. of people in Labor would be very happy if that's no, what, the what the Liberal Party, party does. needs to understand is that the Australian electorate is. Based basically a tolerant electorate. Mm. And I suppose if there was one thing that hold most Australian voters together is that um, that they don't really care what anybody else believes so long as mm. they don't actually want to impose their beliefs on the voter. Yeah. And, um, I mean, we saw that in the the um, same sex marriage, the, the yeah. same sex yeah. marriage, the, the the rainbow revolution, as mm. it's called. We've certainly seen that coming out of the Me Too movement as well. Yeah. So uh, I think that it is time for a very very big stock take on the part of the Liberal Party. And frankly, since we're on democracy sausage, that's a very important thing to happen because our system of government depends on a strong and credible and connected opposition. And without that, we don't actually enjoy the democracy that we would like to have, which is contestability, underpinning the way in which we can all talk, have our conversations, have our debates, if we have to have debates, and get on with the business of governing and being governed. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the parties might like to be in absolutely dominant positions, but for the rest of us, we're better off having a situation where – in we have mid- choice. In the, yeah, and in the middle of a term, it's a reasonable possibility that the other side could win. That's Everyone's right. judged on their performance uh, and what they what they stand for and how they communicate it, Correct. the values that they project. And uh, if if one side's completely out of the race because it's gone off into cloud cuckoo land, which is the way some people in you know Sky After Dark and others would would have the Liberal Party do, that is not a good outcome for democracy and would not be a good outcome even for the Labor Party. I suspect wouldn't. Because you've got to be tested all the time. Yeah, that's right. Now, just quickly on that dynamic about where the the, the conservatives are and and Labor, 
we've had a development just in the last 24 hours before we're speaking now, which is the Nats coming out and saying that they will not now be supporting, well, when I say now, they will not be supporting uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, that is the creation of a voice in the Constitution. This is a, um, I'm frankly, I'm appalled by this. I mean, this is, at the very least, this is a very premature uh, action for them to take. I think it betrays the bias in their position uh, because they have not waited to see any of the detail. Uh, they've they've sort of jumped the gun on that, and and you know they they say that's it's the absence of detail that they've done it. But it's not like the the date's been set for the for the referendum. Uh, there's a whole lot of detail that will be put forward. As we know, the the plan is for the constitution to be amended in a very broad way, just to establish the power to create the voice and the power to create the voice then is handed to the parliament for the design of that structure so it's a it's, so it's a, an advisory body that answers to the parliament not not in any way rivaling the parliament or acting as a third chamber or any of this other nonsense that's been spoken um what what's your feeling about this i mean is this it's a, it's a, it's a pretty negative development really because it does right from the get go mean the prospect of bipartisanship is effectively gone Look, um, it, it puts the, the Liberal Party in an appalling position, actually, for the coalition party to come out so early. And it would appear without much in the way of joint party consultation. So it looks like a sort of force majeure movement, mm. which uh, I think is very, well politically stupid. I mean, it, it is not only sort of disappointing, it's disgraceful to, to think that a statement of principle which is what the voice to parliament as a constitutional uh, uh, referendum is really about. It's not about the practice of the voice to parliament. It's about the statement of principle yes. that Indigenous Australia was here before anybody else and that they have rights and status dependent directly on that. And that needs and, to be recognised. And it has yeah. to be recognised. Yeah. And then it is for the parliament to work out how on earth the statement of principle in the constitution will be transacted into practice. Yeah. And, and there's mean, more that, detail to come out about that before the vote anyway. It's not like course. there's going to be some blank check. As and the conversation's got to be had and that hasn't happened yet. So to come out and say, oh, no, we're not going to have this. The other thing about this, Mark, I think, is that it is a total betrayal of the roots from which the National Party or the old country party came from. Now, it's my habit to spell the word nat with a G. And I actually <laughs> think that that is what we're seeing here. We're seeing a very, very small brain in, in operation that actually does not understand its own electorate. It, re- it should represent regional and rural Australia. And that is where such a lot of the First Peoples of Australia live and their voices have got to be heard as much by the Nats as by anybody else. And they're just not listening. And and I think that the Nats are painting themselves into a corner of political irrelevance. Uh, we've seen what the, the Teal movement looks like in the urban centres just wait until the penny drops in rural Australia when people begin to see that their representatives are no longer farmers, that their representatives are people who run commercial enterprises in rural Australia, who are stock and station agents or accountants or whatever, and very different from the old country party types that the people in the bush 
understood and sometimes liked, but certainly tolerated. And I think that that change in the underpinnings of the Nats is going to cost them dearly as time evolves. Well, we, we shall see about that. I, I'm I'm far more concerned, I must say, with the um, you know the success, the like the possible success of this uh, Uluru statement from the heart, which I think is just such a a golden opportunity yeah. for national, sort of partly for national renewal, but also for a degree of national completion, or at least to begin the process of actually putting together properly a nation instead of the uh, you know the lie upon which it's been built up until now, which is a which is a, a an egregious lie of omission of about uh, a countless atrocities. And Mark, last time we spoke, we were talking about my book actually, and and it's one of the points that I make about Australia as an international agent that until we define who we are yes. and what we stand for, we have diminished agency. And at the heart of that redefinition of ourselves is a recognition that as an entire and whole nation, Indigenous Australia is central. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I like the way Henry Reynolds put it at the press club yep. last week when he said, we are. We need to understand we are not British. We have our First Nations. They are our patriots. Yep. And I thought that's a really beautiful line. Um, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll get into that sort of international sphere. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. You're on Democracy Sausage. I'm talking with Alan Beam, um, who is the Director of International and Security Affairs Program at the Australia Institute. He's also the author of No Friends, No Enemies, a book we've discussed on this program and which was, uh, congratulations, Alan, shortlisted uh, for the Political Book of the Year, which is um, no great surprise to me having read it and spoken to you about it and and uh, regarding it with just such, such great esteem. But um, I was very... Glad to see that others agreed with that. Well, I was totally gobsmacked, Mark, I'd have to tell you. And I'd have to say, I think Dean Ashenden's book um, is is the one that should have won because it is precisely on the issue that we were just talking about before our break, yeah. and that is the centrality of Indigenous Australia to a proper definition of who we are. Yeah, well, that's beautifully put. Well, let's go to uh, some of the subjects that are, that are sort of covered in the book, or at least... Um, we're going to subjects, and some of this has been you've written about, as you say. Um, let's start with the reframing of Australia's position. I don't know if you saw Sean Turnell speaking with Sarah Ferguson on seven thirty last night. It was great an interview. utterly captivating interview. Yeah, and, great interview. And if you didn't know Sean Turnell uh, before that, uh, but you'd seen how many people said lovely things about him being such a brilliant 
magnetic person. It was so obvious there. I mean, he, 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 he there's just something about this guy. He's well, the he, proof of the pudding was in the viewing, wasn't it, it? It was. It was extraordinary. And for what he's been through, and just the humanity of him, and the balance, and the and the warmth, and the humility. Yeah, the humility. I mean, a yeah. fabulous person. Mm. And I think Sarah brought all of that out in her interview last night. Yeah, it was. Really, I hope your listeners really go and have a look for that. Yeah, yeah, really, I, I, really good. Interview. I couldn't agree more. It's it's something some something that people really should seek out. Have a look at uh, seven thirty report from what are we talking from. Monday night uh, of uh, which was what the twenty eighth yeah of November. Of November. Um, now, as he, he made the point, going back to why I mentioned him, he made the point that uh, uh, he did notice a difference in the cadence of representation that was occurring in uh, in in looking after his interests during his six hundred and fifty days in captivity in Myanmar. Um, he uh, once there was a change of government, he could really feel that there was a sort of a step up in the in the pace and and activity to try and secure his freedom. We've seen lots of other changes uh, in you know quite critical changes. Obviously, the most spectacular being the bilateral meeting between uh, Anthony Albanese and Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20. Of course, Xi Jinping meant a number of others as well, but um, the bilateral relationship seems to be improving. What's your assessment of um, of where the government, how, how, how successful the government's been in it's, what's now been six months since its election? Look, it's calibrated, it's deliberate, and it's managed. Um, there's no shrillness anymore in any of the issues that the current government is dealing with, they've got down to the business of managing international relations. You know, when I was a baby cadet in the Department of Foreign Affairs 50 years ago now, we had to study a book written by a fellow called Edward Sato. And the opening sentence is really important that uh, diplomacy is the conduct of official relations between states on the basis of intelligence and tact. And that, I think, is what we're seeing played out now, not just by, by Senator Penny Wong, but also by the Prime Minister and by other ministers who are operating on the international stage, like Chris Bowen at, at Sharm el-Sheikh, that it is a managed, sort of calibrated and, and very carefully differentiated approach to the conduct of foreign policy. It's wonderful to see. And coming back to, to um, Sean Tonell, it it is so important to realise that all of the the management of his imprisonment with the government of Myanmar since May, not a bit of it has been out on the public stage. It's been very, very professionally and carefully dealt with quietly so that there's no loss of face anywhere and that the best outcome that could be generated, in fact, was generated. I I expect that that's how Penny will deal with the imprisonments in in China, which are equally disturbing and and worrying, and all of the other things that that she's currently dealing with in what are often difficult relations with with our neighbours because we don't share values, um, but we do share interests. And uh, I think that this is what we're seeing in the conduct of foreign policy, as I say, by the foreign minister, but also by her colleagues. It's very refreshing, Mark. Is there, just to be you know fair about this, is there just simply as a result of there having been a change um, going to be an improvement? I mean, were, were relations in a number of these spheres in their nadir, in their lowest point, 
and there was a change of government and you used the term about saving face, that gives both sides an opportunity to reframe just the fact of the change of government itself. New personnel here, the Chinese, for example, or the, or the, or the Burmese, the Myanmar junta, uh, whoever it is, can can sort of say, well, I can now change my position. I have cover to do so because the other side has changed its people. I'm now dealing with people that I believe I can say I can trust or whatever. And and so I suppose what I'm asking is it's kind of easier for a new government to reframe these things to improve the situation just by virtue of being new. Look, change is handy of itself. You're quite right. But you've got to manage change you've got to capitalise on it. Uh, you can suddenly find yourself, you know, bang in the middle of the stage and think, oh, hell, what am I doing here? Yeah. Uh, this is a bit of a surprise. Um, I think what we're seeing play out is an absolutely different mindset, uh, a different comprehension of what the management of international relations is. And we're seeing also a, a much closer relationship between the government and its advisors. Uh you know the Department of Foreign Affairs, but also the many other departments which do operate on the international stage, um, on climate change, for instance, very importantly, yeah. um, but also in the Treasury portfolio. I mean, we've had a, a very important initiative kicked off by the Prime Minister, getting our major investment corporations in Australia, but particularly the super funds, take a very significant visit to Indonesia following his own meeting with uh, Jokowi. So, you know, we've got this sort of deliberate, managed, thoughtful approach to the fact that international relations is not just a domestic political issue. If you bark and bray and if you're shrill and and beating your chest all the time and tub thumping and doing all of those things, getting the megaphone out, you might get a bit of support from the margin in Australia which is, as we discussed earlier, where the Liberal Party appears to be playing to, but you won't actually make any progress. That's not how you conduct diplomacy. Well, can, okay, but look, I'll be devil's advocate again. Um, a lot of the commentary, quite rightly, I think, pointed out that Australia had achieved this uh, this thaw in relations with uh, China um, and had done so without giving away anything, without having to take a backward step. Now, going back to my point about the change, the changeover from the previous government to this one, do we have to acknowledge that the previous government, shrill though it was, tub-thumping though its tone was from time to time, nonetheless very sort of, sort of assertively um, made Australia's position clear in relation to a number of key values, and then the new government comes along and the Chinese say, right, we can now reframe this, we're going to deal with this government. Do we have to acknowledge that the former government did a lot of the hard yards of not yielding, even even though it may have done so in a slightly cumbersome way? Look, I don't agree with that. Um, I don't think diplomacy is ever about not yielding. Right. Um, it, it's It's not sort of a binary, it's not a, a zero-sum game. Uh, the, the important thing to realise about diplomacy is that if it's conducted properly, everybody comes out well. Um, that's the nature of negotiation. Uh, you don't get all that you want. You, you do well if you get some of what you want. Um, if you get nothing, then you close down the negotiation. And 
There's and that's no, what had happened. That's what had happened. Yeah. And the fact is that nobody in the world has any confusion whatsoever about what Australia values and what it stands for. It is simply that we don't have to poke it up people's noses. Mm. You know, you've only got to say it once or twice, and then people do understand that. Uh, what you don't have to do is to beat the drum and as though that's all there is, particularly when you're dealing with, with cultures which are so different from your own in what they value, but also in how they operate. And so what we're seeing now is much greater sensitivity to that dynamic mm. where it's it's multidimensional. And all of those dimensions are sort of bouncing off each other all the time. I mean, in my view, international relations is intrinsically chaotic. Um, and I like that. Um, well, you must be happy at the moment then. I am. It is chaotic. <laughs> um, but that's the nature of it is what I'm saying, yeah. that it is not predictable. Um, it is not linear. Um, and, and human agency, but particularly the agency of leaders, leads to so much variation and difference. And we're seeing that in the Ukraine. I mean, a silly decision, you might say, stupid, insane decision by Putin to go to war. Um, but that's what he's done. And so that suddenly throws everything up in the air yeah, again. Exactly. So that's what I mean by chaotic. Yeah. And what we have is a government which understands that it is intrinsically chaotic and that the job of government is to make the best of what you've got. And that is not done by screaming and shouting in the megaphone. It is done by careful discussion. So I don't accept that it's about not giving anything away. Um, it's too early to give anything away. What we're trying to do is to re-establish a way of dealing with each other. And I think what we'll see is that all of the things that have been problematic say, in the Australia-China relationship, will be dealt with sequentially. It won't be done as a package. We'll get individual items and say, well, how will we deal with the trading bit? How will we deal with um, differences in attitude on your relationship with Russia? Um, how will we deal with the difference in our relationship with the United States? Where does that take us if both of us are to live in this region, to live cooperatively, to continue to invest in not only our own prosperity, but the prosperity of the region, and sitting on the top of that prosperity, the fact that we should remain a stable and secure region? Now, that requires quite a lot of conversation, and that, I think, is what we're seeing the government up for. It requires a, a kind of a pluralist mindset of understanding multiple different positions and the validity of those positions, even if you don't share them yourself. I mean, Beautifully they're, they're, expressed, they're, yes, they Professor are. Kenny. Thank you. Thank you very much. Beautifully expressed. Um, I wonder if, therefore, on, based on that, uh, that the diplomacy or the position of the previous government and indeed of a number of uh, sort of neocon-type uh, governments around the world in the past, uh, if, their, if their fundamental problem had been this idea that they had to get other countries to express similar values to their own that the starting point was not essentially diplomatic at all, that it was fundamentally unachievable and conflictual in its approach. I think that that's right. Very, very few countries actually share values. Um, there are major differences in the way in which countries express their value sets. And it's easy for our leaders, particularly the more stupid kind of leaders, to jump up and say, oh, it's wonderful, we share values with X, Y or Z. And then we we put some other sort of wonderful 
badge around it, whether it's sort of comprehensive strategic partnership. Mm. I mean, Australia specialises in having strategic partnership with countries that are traditionally enemies. Yes. And we've got, what, 19 or 20 of these strategic partnerships now, which are, in fact, meaningless. Mm. Um, they're not strategic partnerships at all. Um, we just put a badge on it and think that that's the nature of the, the, the work of the sort day. Because it's sort of a gesture almost. To it, it is, but claim. I mean, in international relations, gestures are simply that. Mm. The substance of international relations is actually agreement. And and what countries are working towards all the time is agreement. It the, the agreement might be by way of treaty. It might be by way of uh, memoranda of understanding. Uh, it might be in all sorts of FTAs. forms. Yes, I mean multilateral agreements, bilateral agreements of all kinds, and we negotiate those really very carefully. We've we've just seen that transacting and, and, they, and they are done. Uh, in spite of values differences in a range of other fields, aren't they? I mean, they they're are. sort of in recognition of the fact that the, we don't agree on everything, but we agree on this on in these terms. And w- what is interesting too to me, and uh, again, in my book, I go into this quite a lot with respect to Asia and try to sort of tease out some of the, the elements by which Asian cultures differentiate themselves from Western cultures. Um, it doesn't take a lot of effort to understand that. It takes much more effort to appreciate it. Mm. And I think the, the lucky thing that we've got going for us at the moment is that culturally, Senator Wong does understand it. I mean, she knows what it's like to come from a different culture. Um, it's not hard to get Penny talking about what it was like to be a kid at school where she was an outsider in this mm. country and how long it took her to move from being an outsider to being accepted and now, of course, a, a prominent insider. Mm. But when she goes into Asia, and this was so clear in both Indonesia and Malaysia, she was able to talk to her counterparts with that profound understanding of belonging. And I think that and that, that's not just a visual thing. It's not, no, not just her Asian no. heritage. It's the way in which she acts. Yes. And you know, people in Australia, you know, would say, "Well, why? Why on earth did she go to Kota Kinabalu?" I mean, most of us probably don't know where Kota Kinabalu is, but she went there because that's where she grew up as a very small child. That was her hometown in Malaysia. And it has enormous resonance across Asia when you go back to your hometown. I mean, that's what Chinese New Year in China is all about, going back to your hometown. And the fact that Penny did that so early in her uh, period as foreign minister got enormous resonance right across Southeast Asia, because that's what they understand, that that signalling of belonging of sharing, of identity. Is it exclusive identity? Is she a Malaysian? Of course not. It is the fact that our identity in Australia encompasses being from Malaysia. And that's what she's so able to demonstrate. It's a wonderful asset for us as a nation. And of course, this government, because of, as we've just been discussing, it's it's now back in conversations all around the world in places where those conversations had become problematic for a range of reasons. Um, how how important is conversation in itself, is dialogue, is, is showing the respect, to, particularly in this region, showing respect to your interlocutors in terms of th- those conversations, those processes? Respect goes to the foundations of how 
different cultures deal with each other. It's what we should learn from Asia. I mean, Asia is a, a mixing pot of so many different cultures, some of them really big, powerful, and, and very, very, very old. I mean, China's culture is 3,000 years old and has been a dominant culture in Southeast Asia for at least 2,000 years. Um, there are other cultures, though. The Indian culture, as it sort of spread across Southeast Asia in two really huge waves. You know, the Buddhist culture across into Thailand and, and into Indochina, as we call it. And of course, the, the Hindu culture across into Indonesia and, and into Bali, where it's still alive. I mean, these are powerful things and respect sits at the heart of that, respect and tolerance. And, and that, again, is something that is very, very well understood, not only by the foreign minister, but by the professionals in her department. And that's a starting point. It's not the end of it. The other thing I think that we're seeing very, very clearly from the foreign minister and from the other ministers like Pat Conroy, who's actually got a special uh, um, responsibility for the, the Pacific and for the aid program, is the ability to accept the, the, the South Pacific nations on their own terms and to go there and to listen. I mean, the one thing that we're really, really bad at, and we share this with many of our Western sort of colleague countries, is that we want to go and deliver lectures all the time. Is that because we sort of secretly or not so secretly believe we already know? No, it's because we're so insecure. <laughs> We've got to go and start braying and start talking <laughs> before we actually listen to anything about which we can talk. Um, I think it actually does come down to this this difficulty we have in in identity um, and the difficulty we have in in chucking off this very fundamental insecurity that we display all the time, but particularly in always um, having to look for a, a great and powerful protector and having to um, uh, flex so many elements of our foreign policy off what might be the foreign policy of the US. And this is not a statement against the US. It's a statement about our inability to act on our own terms and to act with our own agency. Is that is that changing, or is, it, do you predict that it will change? As the US, particularly if the US continues on its current path, which seems to be one of internal sort of delegitimation, almost you know whether where the, the United States is a is a is a nation in deep trouble um, in its it, heart. It may or may not be. Um, I think there are a lot of internal and inherent strengths in the United States, and and uh, that in itself is worth um, some deep study. And in fact, I'm working on that at the moment. We might have another publication coming out of this. Um, because I've been thinking about ANZUS and that for many years. But I want to come back to your question. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we will define ourselves because the United States is having problems defining itself. I think there are two big things happening in Australia, one of which we've touched upon already, that is the statement from the heart, that once we recognise that we are the inheritors of a 65,000-year-old living culture, a culture which is so deeply, deeply entwined with country, with the environment in which people live, in, in the care for the environment, and the fact that if we care for the environment, the environment cares for us. Indigenous people know that the environment is a living thing. That's the first thing which will just so help us get a very, very strong sense of our nationhood. But the second uh, is when we absolutely boot misogyny out the back door and have a country built around proper 
gender equality across the nation. And once we get on top of those two things, we will be a different country. And we're doing that now. So we're not going to define ourselves in contrast, for example, with the United States and say, well, let's not go there. Let's not have guns and let's not have sort of really, really deep um, racially based inequality which does exist here, of course. Mm. Let's be a country which is inclusive, which is tolerant, where we do exercise and show care for each other and get on from there to redefining our own agency and how we act on the global stage. And I don't think our current government needs persuasion on that. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's an interesting point. I think Australia is in a significantly different position from its other AUKUS partners, if I can use that term. Um, the UK has obviously been through some political uh, turmoil uh, over recent times uh, and been, you know, I mean, its whole decision to pull out of Europe has just been a disaster mm. for its economy uh, and uh, for its politics, you know, for its legitimacy, really. And, of course, we see the problems that the US has and the structural inequality, which there is really no appetite for addressing. I mean, no one is really talking in any persuasive or or likely to come to pass manner about structurally changing wealth distribution in the United States. And that's at the heart of a lot of its problems, as is race, as you touched on. Mm. Um, so whilst you say they have some, the US has some inherent strengths, and I'm sure that's certainly historically that's the case, and it's certainly a massive military power, but um, it's not a good time in the West, uh, really. And we've seen that even with Putin's move in Ukraine, as you said. I mean, the, it's exposed a whole lot of hypocrisies and, and sort of complacencies and vanities in, in the West uh, that, um, um, you know, has, has seen some fairly rapid readjustments, Germany being a good example of it in terms of, you know, rearming itself. Uh, but the, the reliance of those countries on, on Russian energy, for example, the inability to actually win a war that you're not fighting in, which is where NATO finds itself in, in Ukraine. I mean, it's it's an extremely troubled picture. And maybe you're right. Maybe the US, you know, is is, is around for a long time in the future as as the as the number one superpower, but maybe it isn't. Look, all these things we have to think about and work out what happens. I mean, what we're seeing in the United States, as we're seeing in Britain, is an inability to play to the centre. Mm. Um, both the major parties in the United States um, are playing to their margins and it is costing them, and that's very, very clear, but it's not only costing them, it's costing the American people. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the people of the United States, they're no more foolish than we are. Um, we know when we're being neglected by governments, everybody in a democratic system does. And slowly but surely, we will see the United States, both the major parties, refocus on where the, the big centre is in the United States. Now, the Americans have got a few big problems. I mean, massive gerrymanders in some of the red states particularly. Uh, it's very difficult for the Democrats to win in those states, and particularly when you get to the Senate where states have equal votes, as we sort of have in the Australian Senate. We modelled our Senate, in fact, on the United States Constitution. So, yes, the United States has got big problems. Britain has got really, really big problems. And the divides in Britain, and there are multiple divides in Britain, are going to take uh, a long time to heal. And Brexit is simply a symptom of all of that. And I think the common factor across the West, and indeed in a great number of the non-Western countries, is that we are, at this point in the 21st century, suffering a massive leadership deficit, um, 
uh, right across the world. And there are many reasons for that, but I think the major one is that our governments come out of machines. They don't come out of individuals vying to lead. And so we're seeing in Britain, uh, I mean, the appointment of Liz Trust was truly, truly amazing. Mm. Um, it was a classic sort of populist debacle, as indeed was everything that led up to it. And we've you seen know, that in Brexit. Australia, actually, yeah. the way in which the Labor Party rules changed and members of Labor Party branches have got a vote about who is the parliamentary leader. I personally happen to be opposed to that because that there's nobody who knows prospective parliamentary leaders better than their colleagues. And if, if you're sitting in a, a Labor branch in Sydney or Melbourne, uh, then you have not much of an idea of what the, the the representatives in Queensland might be like. And, you know, that's bad. Mm. I mean, the parliamentary colleagues do, and I don't want to crap on about that, Mark, mm. but you can see my point mm. that this sort of leadership deficit it's is It's one of those things us. that looks at sort of a tra- – you know, this is always the problem in democracies, and we saw this with the Republic referendum – Things that superficially look hyper democratic, they look, you know, they look like they're, it's, they become hard to argue against. But sometimes you need to think about, well, what will the actual result of this be in terms of representation? What, how will, how will changing that mechanism alter the parameters of what's, what's seen as possible and desirable? And, um, yes, the, the, the rank and file vote, the Liz Trust example is, is really good one because you've got 160,000 Tory party members who decide to vote for someone who's advocating something that was plainly cockamamie, plain, yeah. plainly stupid. Mad. Yeah. I mean, really mad. Yeah. And and yet, and, and she didn't last long because guess who found out that it was mad? It, not only the electors, they, they worked <laughs> that out pretty quickly, but the city worked it out straight away. Well, the markets took the back markets control. Just- you know that great Brexit, uh, <laughs> Dominic Cummings is, you know, take back control of the Brexit slogan. Yeah. Well, the markets took back control. That's they turned out to be the ones actually in charge. Indeed, yeah, the That's city, exactly as you right. say. Look, uh, Alan, always a great pleasure talking with you, and I'm sure we'll do so again. We'll have to talk about that uh, American, um, uh, what is it, an American foreign policy or, or sort of oh, strategic a, assessment of of, of America. Alexis de Tocqueville sort of wrote about America well over a century ago, and I don't think I can advance on that. I'm not quite <laughs> sure, but one of the things I think that we should think a lot about as we enhance our own agency as an actor on the international stage is the nature of our major relationships with China, with the United States, with New Zealand. Uh, That's a very important relationship to Australia, and we ignore that, with Indonesia, Mm. the great emerging power of Asia. Right on our doorstep. Right on our doorstep. We just seem to fly over it all the time. We love flying over it, except those who go to Bali. They seem to like that. Yeah. But Mark, great to well, talk I'm to you as ever. <laughs> and uh, look forward to the next the next session. Yes, thank you, Alan. Uh, that's uh, been terrific talking to you. Um, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. As I say, it comes to you every week from the ANU. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, episodes left before we close up for a, a little interregnum over the Christmas early summer break. Um, and we'll be doing our politician of the year or our our sort of Oscars or awards ceremony, which we usually have uh, Maria and Frank Bongiorno uh, along for, and uh, we have quite a quite a uh, an enjoyable time and a few laughs at the expense of uh, at the expense of people who've done well and people who've perhaps not done so well. I think Scott Morrison might be getting another award this year, uh, if nothing else, just for sheer ambition. Um, today, today. You mean, as in, he's going to get an award from uh, by way from of the censure motion? Will give yes, him an award. yes. Mm. Well, he definitely deserves that. He definitely deserves that. 
Um, so, yes, if you have any views about who you think should be winning an award for their performance in the political sphere, then um, look us up on Twitter at uh, Apps Policy Forum, APPS Policy Forum, uh, and um, we'll um, we'll consider those and we might even be handing out a few prizes. You know, we've got these new Keep Cups, which have Democracy Sausage written on them, so um, I think they might be quite popular. We'll see. Bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.